is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs. But it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him, because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. 
As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity. Not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and being that it's that time of the year, St. Patrick's Day, we figured we'd give you the story behind the story, which is what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Buried beneath the St. Patrick's Day symbols of shamrocks, leprechauns, and green beer lies the story of a man determined to share a message with a people who had made him a slave. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of St. Patrick. R.P.C. Hansen wrote in his book about St. Patrick that the tragedy with all the myths and legends, such as Patrick driving all the snakes out of Ireland, his association with using Shamrock to explain the Trinity, and the preconception that he's Irish, is that these actually hide the truth. They hide the real character of the man and the power that drove Patrick to do what he did. What we are about to do is get rid of the myths and the legends and go to the primary source, the words of Patrick himself. In fact, his 5th century writings and letters, known as the Confession, are one of the earliest surviving documents in Irish history. Here's Dr. Tim Campbell, director of the St. Patrick Centre in Downpatrick, Ireland. Ego Patricius Pacator Russicissimus, I Patricus Sinner, least faithful of many. Those are the words that begin the history of Ireland. Patrick was born into a well-off family and lived in a country estate on the western coast of what was Roman-occupied Britain in the very last days of the Roman Empire. As Roman legions abandoned Britain in order to protect themselves in other regions of the Roman Empire, Order and authority fell into disarray, and Britain's west coast became vulnerable to frequent plundering by Irish slave raiders. Patrick was a teenager living a very comfortable life as the son of a government official and church cleric, though he himself had very little interest in anything pertaining to his father's faith. One day, Irish raiders captured the 16-year-old Patrick along with several thousand men, women, and children from the surrounding countryside, packed them tightly into holds of waiting ships, and took them to Ireland, a wild and savage place beyond the Roman reach. Patrick was sold as a slave and was made a shepherd for a very harsh master. Patrick hated the Irish, and this hatred fueled his will to live he vowed one day to repay them for their cruelty. Here's Dr. Campbell, Elva Johnston, professor of history at University College Dublin, Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin, and father, Billy Swan. Celtic people did not work with slaves the same way that the Romans did. They treated their slaves pretty badly, like cattle, and would have worked you until you died particularly as a non-Irish slave, he would have been at an even greater disadvantage because he wouldn't have been recognised almost as a person. Presumably it is a sort of meant to be slavery for life. He begins to conclude that this has happened because I deserve it, basically, and this happened to shake me out of my complacency and to shake me out of um, a way of life I was living in which God didn't matter for me. Here are the words of Patrick. I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. And more and more the love of God and the fear of him grew in me, and my faith was increased and my spirit was quickened. 
so that in a day I prayed up to a hundred times, and almost as many in the night. Indeed, I even remained in the wood and on the mountain to pray. And come hail, rain or snow, I was up before dawn to pray. The Spirit was fervent in me. Something new is happening, something that hadn't happened before. That personal relationship, that dimension of a personal relationship with God. Patrick's bitterness and loneliness began to melt away as he came to realize God was with him. He tried to recall sermons from church and stories from the Bible. He chided himself for his boyhood lack of interest in God. Although Patrick knew of Jesus Christ, he never cared. But now, as a slave in a strange green distant land, the little he had learned as a boy came flooding back to him. He didn't have a Bible, but he could pray. And as his love for God grew, his hatred for the Irish died. Patrick was held as a slave for six years as he continued to pray every day. Here's the words of Patrick and Patrick's biographer, Thomas O'Loughlin. It was there, indeed, that one night I heard a voice. Patrick, well have you fasted. Very soon you are to travel to your homeland. Behold, your ship is prepared. I took flight, leaving the man I had been bound to for six years. But the ship was not nearby, but maybe 200 miles away, where I had never been and where I knew nobody. The biggest danger is someone says, you're a slave. I'll find out where you come from and I'll take you back and I'll claim a reward. It took him days to walk 200 miles before reaching the seaport. And there, right before him, was a ship getting ready to depart. But the captain, seeing he was a slave, refused to give him passage. Patrick turned to leave, and as he did, he prayed for guidance. Before he ended his prayer, one of the sailors in the back of the ship said, Come! Hurry! We shall take you on! Patrick was then asked to pledge himself to the crew through a Celtic tradition that included sucking on their chests. These days we would shake hands, and in those days that was a, a way of bonding with each other to show that you would be loyal to them. He didn't want to do that because he was Christian. The sailors gave him a pass and led him on board the ship. They traveled for three days before landing on an unknown desolate port. They traveled on foot for 28 days, searching for food as the haggard, half-starved men grew weak. The captain fixed his fiery eyes on Patrick and said, Tell me, Christian, you say that your God is great and all-powerful. Why then do you not pray for us? We are suffering from hunger. It is unlikely that we shall ever see a human being again. Patrick smiled. Be truly converted with all your heart to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for him. When the men turned around, a herd of pigs crossed the path in front of them. They would feast on ham for days. Patrick writes that after this, they thanked God mightily, and he became honorable in their eyes. But just days after this miracle, Patrick was once again taken captive and made a slave. 
On the very first night he was with his captors, he received a divine message telling him he would remain with them for two months. This is exactly what happened. Patrick wrote, The Lord freed me from their hands. Two years passed before Patrick finally made it home to his family in Britain. The Patrick that returned was a very different person from the one who left. He was someone who had encountered God in the darkest part of his day and who had, as a result of encountering God in a real and living way, uh, become much more comfortable with the idea that God was active and alive and, and to be taken seriously. Then one night, a voice returned to him. I saw in the night the vision of a man whose name was Victor, coming, as it were, from Ireland with countless letters. And he gave me one of them, and I read the opening words of the letter, which were, The Voice of the Irish. And as I read the beginning of the letter, I thought that at the same moment I heard their voice. They were those beside the wood of Vauclot, which is near the Western Sea, and they cried out as with one voice. We ask you, holy boy, come and walk among us once again. And you've been listening to the story of St. Patrick, and a special thanks to CBN Films for allowing us access to their beautifully crafted feature-length docudrama, I Am Patrick which will be premiering in a theater near you on March 17th and 18th. We'd also like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to footage in their film, Patrick. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. And by the way, what we heard at the end, the Patrick that returned, returned a different man than the one who left. He'd encountered God in the darkest days of his life and took the idea of an act of God more seriously. And those kind of encounters happen to Americans on a regular basis, and we don't shy away from them when they happen. And of course, obviously, we're telling this story because so many Irish Americans call this country home, and it's why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day when we continue more of St. Patrick's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the story of St. Patrick. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of this remarkable story. After several years in the monasteries of France, Patrick was ordained a bishop. Patrick told his church, family, and friends he would be returning to Ireland. And they were shocked. Don't you know what they do with slaves who run away? Surely God would not require this from one who has suffered so much already. Settle down here in peace. The church leaders argued he was wasting his time. Those brutal barbarians have no interest in God. Patrick told them, God snatched me from my homeland and parents so that I might know and love him. It is in Ireland that I wish to serve until I die. If 
the Lord would grant it to me. So Patrick, who was still a fugitive in Ireland, set his feet to walk and heart to share the gospel message to the Irish everywhere, beginning in the year 432. The pre-Christian Druids were a powerful force in 5th century Ireland. These Celtic religious leaders were part of a pagan priesthood and would be rivals to Patrick's ministry. The Druids hated him for leading people away from their idols. They robbed, beat, imprisoned, and tortured him. He was enslaved a third time. Twelve times his enemies nearly killed him, but always the Lord rescued him. He sells his nobility, which I take to be a reference to him selling essentially his inheritance. It's almost like a form of seed funding, which will enable him to get to Ireland. Here's Patrick, Alan Harper, Chris Seaton, co-author of New Celts, and Father Neil Carlin. It was not my grace, but God, who conquered in me and who resisted them all, that I might come to the Irish nations to preach the gospel. He established his great stone church on the hilltop. The site is strategically located on one of the main uh, transportation routes in inland Ireland. That makes this an extremely significant and important place from which to conduct your mission. Patrick did break the mould of the, of the church at that time. Being in that sense quite radical and um, an outsider, uh, I think that to me is an authentic pattern that resonates with the New Testament. Think of John the Baptist, think of Jesus. They, they were not comfortable within the institutional structures of the church. So much of church leadership was quite locked into an earthly security, a worldly security. Uh, whereas what Patrick did was completely counter-intuitive to go to one of the more wild and unwelcoming places. Patrick needed an awful lot of conviction in his heart would have needed a lot of fire in his blood to be able to do what he, he did, which was effectively change a nation. I think one of the things that most interests me about Patrick is that he came into what was a situation of social difficulties and considerable conflict with a completely revolutionary message, which, yes, he had to use local um, influence to spread, but which transcended, totally transcended the circumstances of the local divisions and disputes. He comes across from, from his writings as, as a very humble man, a man who knew his frailty, talking of himself as, as a great sinner, like all the saints seem to do. And I often think it's like you come into the sun and you see the dust coming through a, a, a beautiful window in a building, you didn't see the dust before the sunlight shone through that light. And I often think of the saints like that, because you, to you and I, they're not great sinners. But as they came close to the great light and are aware of the great God, they become more and more aware of their sin, and yet more and more aware of God's mercy. Patrick converted thousands to Christianity. He opposed slavers, Irish kings, druids, and most of all, hostility from his fellow Christians. Here again is Dr. Tim Campbell. 
Patrick went AWOL. And we just don't know how that all panned out. He said that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in Ireland because that's what God demanded. Therefore, we got a guess that he never did go back. Patrick died of old age and was buried in Northern Ireland in the year 461 on March 17th, the day we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Not long after Patrick's death, the Roman Empire fell and Western Europe drifted into the Middle Ages. But Patrick's work was not in vain. As Christianity established itself, as it became more vibrant, it became known as the land of saints and scholars, and that led in turn to a whole proliferation of Christian missionaries leaving Ireland and flooding continental Europe. Patrick's story began a chain of events that is quite remarkable in the impact that it had. He wore out many more pairs of sandals in death than he did in life. And he's still going. People are still reading his confession and still being interested in Christianity because he wrote his message down. Here again is Chris Seaton. The work of evangelism in Ireland and the establishing of those monastic houses contributed to a strong place of learning, of culture, and definitely, of course, a strong place of of a springboard for evangelism, which down the line spawned the re-evangelization of Britain and mainland Europe. To this day, Patrick's works offer hope for religious reconciliation in Ireland. Here's Harry Smith from Belfast, director of the Christian Renewal Centre. Patrick brought a Christianity that was pre-Roman in that sense, you know, therefore he, he predates everything that we would see in this land as being Catholic or Protestant, and therefore in a sense he's an anchor point for us whenever we're talking about reconciliation in this land of something of a commonality. In closing, let us hear Patrick's final words. I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God. Some of them may come upon this writing which Patrick, a sinner, wrote in Ireland. May none of them ever say that whatever little I did or made known to please God was done through ignorance. Instead, you can judge and believe in all truth that it was a gift of God. This is my confession before I die. I'm Greg Hengler, and from all of us here at Our American Stories, have a great St. Patrick's Day. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And again, a special thanks to CBN Films for allowing us to access their movie docudrama, I Am Patrick, which will be premiering in a theater near you on March 17th and 18th. And we'd also like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to footage of their film, Patrick. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 other titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. And my goodness, he was an entrepreneur of sorts going into a wild, untamed land with a message that caused him to meet enemies everywhere around him, converting thousands to his faith, but in the end, lots of enemies too. And those final words, my goodness, I pray for those who believe in and have reverence for God May none of them ever say that what I did to please God 
was not done in ignorance, but to please him. Beautiful words, a beautiful story, Patrick's story, St. Patrick's story. And by the way, that he calls himself a sinner is something we can all, all of us, believers or not, know that we're all flawed. And what a beautiful story and what grace he found through his God. A great story, a great Irish story, a great human story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, while most of us want to avoid, uh, we worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them. They just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's is just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit and a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Wentzville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple Mm -hmm. more of you even. So who else do we have here? This is is Chimera. This is Sierra. This is Sierra and this is Kai. Gotcha. And there's one hiding below in the back there. So So, um, you're about to, uh, we come in, you're packing up because Mm -hmm. 
you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the street. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord. Our landlord didn't pay the mortgage company. And they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. And then how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, Almost a year now? Over yeah, we went, oh, to our, we went to our mom's. Her mom had bed else, so we went yeah, there for a little bit. And then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills, and I was giving what I could. Right. And it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're and, working. Yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know? pretty, pretty much so. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. And now the kids are in school? Yes. Yes, sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh, yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them, I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He's yeah. happy. Just turned five. Oh, yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. There's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around, if that makes sense. So how about uh, meals? Yeah, a lot of microwaves. Yeah, a lot of What you see on I've the table is what we have for a, our meals right there. Uh, what is that, like a skillet thing I can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in? Yeah. Well, you guys are smiling. looks like you're making the best of it. Not much can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Not easy to smile. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't really have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. Yeah, you still feel like you failed oh, yeah. somewhere. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, and you're doing the American Dream, and you're you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes, and they're going to school, and their friends stay the night, and then you get somebody that that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money, and then lets you continue to think that you have a home, and next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it, saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home, so half of our sure. this really what you see. Except for one small storage shed is all we have left of home. Yeah. Everything else, um, we couldn't move it in two hours. That was it. I, I was once evicted and given a half an hour, so I know it happens. I can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids and a whole family and having to move. It was just me. Man, my heart goes out to you. What would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel? Because this is, this is a face of homelessness that they don't see. Um, put a smile on for your kids and, and, and make the best that you can. 
you know, and, and, and pretty much like like us, if you're going to cry, try to, except for her right now, but if you're going to try to try to go yeah. into the bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it because, you know, dads ain't supposed to cry and, yeah. and that's mom's job, I guess, to cry. Yeah, it's okay right. to cry. <laughs> but you don't know what anyone's going through or how they got where they're at. Oh, yeah. yeah. People look so at you don't and... don't make the assumption that yeah, you know. Don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home, you know, it... What the economy is nowadays, a lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making thirty dollars an hour, but they can't they can't make the ends meet with children and, and so they end up in these hotels, which, as we started, is still better than the streets. Yeah, that's that's the that's the main thing. That's why you know it, it, you don't want to be here, but but you you got a roof over your head and and, and keeps everyone together. Yeah, my daddy always told me before he died, homes what you make it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I go to work and I come in here, I take my shower and I play with the kids and then. God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yep. yep, you sleep yep. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um stability yeah stabi stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Oh, uh, my father passed. He so passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. It oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. Right. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent, what we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, you don't have that, I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. One more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and they take a lot of flack for it. Right. I will go. Well, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. No, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but. No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you are listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People. And Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. Was just, it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. And my goodness, 
that wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now we bring you the story of Dr. George Valdez. He's the author of Narco Mindset, the life principles that a cocaine drug lord learned on his journey to find meaning in his life. His story is one of redemption, but it also covers some mature content. The listener discretion is advised. You know, what's really interesting about my life is that a lot of times in life we believe that only bad things happen to uh, bad kids. No one can ever imagine that good things can happen to good kids. You know, my story is very, very different. My story starts when I was a young boy in Cuba. My parents were a very wealthy family. My dad was uh, very, a man of tremendous integrity. Uh, didn't talk to him very, very much. My mother wa- was everything in our lives. And my mother was the one that wanted to leave Cuba. She did not want her children, she was very religious, did not want her children to grow up in a home that just did not, was not allowed to worship God because it was a communist country. And my father, on the other end, he really just thought that communism was not going to affect him. Uh, And he was 40 years old, and I want to come to the United States. And uh, my mother said, well, if you don't want to come, that's fine, but I'm not going to raise my children here. My mother applied to leave Cuba when, I guess in 1962, right after the revolution, which would have made me six years old. We did not get to leave till October 11th, 1966. And I tell them my life, I look at it in three very traumatic or three shifts of my life. Uh, where different uh, occurrences happened that would define the next decade of my life. And the first one was being waked up in the morning early, and my mother saying, get up, get up. We're leaving Cuba, and I'm, I mean, I'm in shock. I'm 10 years old, my brother's nine, my sister is five, and I had no idea, so I went to pack some toys, and my mother's like, no, 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 only the clothes on your back. So as I was going towards the airport, and I'm like, Mom, where are we going? She said, we're going to Miami. Uh, we're going to be with your relatives. And I'm like, really, I mean, constantly like looking and like wondering. Everything is going through my head. Why am I leaving my toys? Why am I leaving my friends? Why are we leaving our relatives? We get to the airport as we are waiting for our name to be called out. Then all of a sudden, uh, towards the end of just about everybody had boarded, 
I see my mother and my father crying and my mother coming to me and my father, all I could hear him say was, I'm not going, I'm not going. I could not understand what he meant by that. But my mother grabbed my hand, I was 10, and uh, she put it with my brother and my sister and she looked at me and said, Jorge, you take your brother and sister to Miami. I will meet you there one day. And at that moment in time, my father, who was just crying and just shaking his head, and I'm walking towards the airplane, and I was in, a, in, in, in complete shock. I mean, like, my whole world had shattered. What, what was happening to me? What, why am I, where am I going? Who am I going to go see? Why is my mom and dad staying behind? Well, my dad ended up joining us, by God's grace, at the last minute. And we arrived in Miami, and, you know, we used to live in a house that was one square block in Cuba. We had cars. We had color television in our house. And we went to live with uh, some relatives, and it was a total of 11 of us, and we went to sleep in the floor. One bedroom, one bathroom, and 11 of us had to go to work or go to school. And at that moment in time, I made a decision in my life, and the decision was, you know, there's no God in the world. God is whoever I make him out to be. My mother's crazy. Fidel was right when he said that God was only for weak people that need a meaning for their lives. But still, you know, I ended up doing things uh, with tremendous integrity. At the age of 17, I became the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank. I was a straight-A student. And I went to school at University of Miami and, uh, and worked at the Federal Reserve Bank full-time. And I did that for almost four years. And literally, never had seen drugs in my life, never drank alcohol. I had a girlfriend that I would see her for two hours on Saturday night and about four hours on uh, Sunday, and that would be about it. I was just set. My life was defined because my life was going to be, I was going to reach the American dream. And the American dream was really defined to me two days after I came from Cuba. When I saw my cousin one day come, and he had this gorgeous uh, candy apple red GTO with uh, a white interior inside. And he had only been there about a year before us. And I began to say to myself, oh my God, if my cousin who just came from Cuba a year ago, has this beautiful car. The day I have a car like this, I'll be somebody. Because at that time, I met what I call the pseudo-American dream. That American dream that told me, George, whenever you have beautiful cars, whenever you have a beautiful woman, whenever you have mansions and cars and planes and all those great things, you'll be somebody. And I was so focused on being that somebody that I really did not think about nothing else but that goal in my mind. Time passed. And I'm about to graduate from University of Miami. My accounting professor at that time, he came up to me and said, George, I want you to come work for me. I just moved from Miami. I did not speak Spanish. You can have secretary, office, all those wonderful things that I thought that one day I would have when I owned my own business. And all you have to do is do my Spanish clients for me. And to me, it was a, probably the first evidence that there was a God in this world. So I went to work for him. I left the Federal Reserve Bank. You know, my father, again, very conservative, did not want me to leave. Uh, he thought I had a tremendous career. And my mother, the other way, was different. My mother was, you're never going to be somebody working for somebody, so do whatever you have to do, son. And so she encouraged me. And I went to work for that man, and I remember going, the first, I mean, the first job I had was a little gr grocery store in Miami. I would say it was about 25 feet wide by 40 feet long, uh, in the middle of just really, really Cuban uh, land, I called it at that time. And uh, I went to work for him. It's called La Puerta del Sol. And the first day that I went in there, he had a little office set up in the back, a little room in the back of the store. And I go there, and the first thing that I see is a bag. And I begin to count the money. 
and it was over $100,000. Now imagine, this is 1976, when you could buy a gorgeous home in Miami for $25,000. So I looked at that, and I was like, wow, amazing that a little place like this is making so much money. I mean, apparently, this is definitely not what they taught us at school. So I let it pass, and I did my books. I set out the journals. I did all that stuff that an accountant does. Come back the next Monday. And when I came back the next Monday, I find another bag. And the bag has 75000 this time. I looked around the store. I looked at all the receipts the guy had bought. It didn't add up to about $500. And I'm like, man, how the heck is this guy turning this $500 into so much income? I mean, I was that naive. Third week, it was just the... the where the, road, where the rubber met the road. I come in again, and this time was like $110,000, $120,000, and I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And again, at the same time, nothing wrong would cross my mind. So I called him in. I said, hey, Albro, let me ask you a question. You know, in accounting, there's a very basic formula. You buy a dollar worth of product, and if you sell it for $3, you have $2 profit. If you sell it for $4, you have $3 profit. I mean, this guy couldn't even read or write. I said, but we have a problem here. Oh, the entire month, all you've bought is about $800. And so far, I'm counting almost $300,000. And literally, he just started laughing in my face. He said, George, what do you think? We're drug dealers. And you can imagine how shocked I was. And I tell you, I was shocked for about 10 seconds. I was shocked for about 10 seconds because that's how quickly I was able to convince myself Hey, George, don't get excited. You're an accountant. You were trained to count money. As long as you don't break the law and do nothing wrong, you're fine. And then, again, remember, during this time, there was no money laundry laws. So uh, he looked at me and he said, look, we have currency restrictions in Colombia. We can't take our money there. So we know that you work for the federal government. Do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? I looked at him and said, of course I know how to open foreign bank accounts. You know, I worked in the accounting department. And I was very close with the auditing department. And I said, uh, he said, well, how much does it cost? And so now I knew that you could open a foreign bank account. And I had heard that it cost you about $700 in Grand Cayman, anywhere between five and $700. But I didn't want to get involved in any of this because this was just way beyond my means. I mean, I was the ultimate nerd. All I ever did is study and work. I knew nothing about life. I knew nothing about drugs. I knew nothing about big business. And they're like, uh, well, can you open three accounts for us? And I'm like, sure. Not, not a problem. And, of course, I'm going to give them, I'm going to go ahead and give them this really stupid offer. And with that offer, they're just going to go ahead and leave me alone. So I go ahead and I said, $10,000 a piece. Now, remember, I knew that all they cost is about, you know, 700 bucks. So I knew for sure that they would tell me, hey, forget about it. There's nothing here to it, so uh, just good hell. Well, they looked at me and said, can you open three? And so I'm trying to, you know, portray the big guy. That, I mean, a big. I, I work for the government after all, so I'm a big shot. And I'm like, not a problem. It'll probably take me a couple of weeks. Well, you know, I think it's one of the, the gravest mistakes in my life because I've looked at life. I've never looked at life that I can't do something. I always thought, well, if someone's done it, I can do it too. But, uh, and that was the wrong mindset. Because all of a sudden, here they give me, right up front, $30,000. I had never seen money like that in my life. I mean, I made, at that time, 
I think minimum wage was like a dollar twenty, and I was making three twenty, three twenty-five an hour at the Federal Reserve Bank. All of a sudden, I see thirty thousand dollars in my pocket. Well, it didn't take me long to make a connection. Head out to Grand Cayman, open uh, those bank accounts, and my world began to change. And that's something that I talk about crossing lines in life. You know, when we cross a line in life, it's just so easy to cross that little thin line. But then it becomes so hard. But once we cross that thin line one time, then it just becomes easier and easier. And all of a sudden, I was opening foreign bank accounts to people managing millions and millions of dollars. You know, my world started to drastically change. And then came the second shift in my life. I went to a party, and I saw this federal judge that would give people hundreds of years for any drug offense, snorting cocaine. And I said to myself, you know what, George? There is no God in this world, and there's definitely no morals. So whatever you do is fine. And then that's where my life just drastically starts to spin out of control. But then again, at the same time, I'm saying to myself, well, I'm making a lot of money. I, I just bought a brand new Mercedes. Uh, I'm going to buy my parents a house. And I'm, again, I'm not doing anything wrong. And it's very important to go back to that era in the, the mid-70s. Cocaine was not even in the DEA radar. It was not even a thing. It was something that was for the rich and famous. And I began to justify my actions as we all do whenever we do something that just deep down inside we know is quite not right. So I began to justify my actions by saying, listen, if rich people want to do this stuff, that's their problem. At least I'm not involved with the drug part. I'm just involved with the money. And I, and I went out like that. Well, the next thing they did is they asked me to if I was interested in opening a, a banana uh, import company. Little did I know that the least thing they were thinking about importing was bananas. And I said, sure. I said, uh, you know, if, I, if you want me to head, be the president of the company, if you want me to do the whole feasibility study and, and the whole infrastructure, then I got to be the president. And it was four people. It was four of them. And these four gentlemen were the group that originally, the original group that would one day go on and become the Medellin drug cartel. And they were different, though. They were uh, Manuel who was the head of the cartel at that time, was a gentleman. He was a, a man that went to mass every day. He had uh, enormous businesses. He was worth hundreds of millions of dollars in 1976 on coal mines, emerald mines. And I started doing all the infrastructure for the company. And then I went all over Europe to look for a, uh, a ship that uh, we called it a landing ship because it had to be something that would have low draft so that it would go in uh, low waters. Because all along, all they cared about was not importing bananas. They couldn't give a darn if we threw all the bananas in the ocean. What they wanted to do was import cocaine. I had no idea, totally clueless. But we went on like that, and as I started to get to know these people, they started to say to me, you know what, George? We want you to handle all our operations in the United States. Now imagine, here's a 20-year-old kid. I have braces. I've never, never crossed any i never done anything wrong in my life. I had a perfect record. I didn't even have a speeding ticket. All the alcohol in my life did not even fit in a teacup. Being asked to handle all drug operations in the United States for the most powerful criminal organization in the world at this time. No way. There was just no way that I even thought would cross my mind. But they kept that in a very subtle way, in a subtle way, till one day I came up with this brilliant idea. So I'm going to say to him, I said, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. Next time that they ask me, if I want to do that, I'm going to say, okay, I'll do it. But here's the deal. You guys put up all the money, and I want 
equal parts. In other words, you're four, now we're going to be five. No doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind that they would tell me to just go to hell because there's just no way in the world. This mid-40s, multimillionaires, uh, very, very powerful people would go ahead and let a 20-year-old punk kid dictate to him that he's going to be equal partners with them and they got to put up 20% of his money, which at that time would have been, each load was costing three, dollars $400,000 per person to bring in. So I left. They told me, well, we'll think about it. And I went back to my hotel, and I'm t- saying, well, you know what? That's wonderful. Finally got rid of the headache. Not a problem. And I go on. And I went, went to bed, and I was just, I had this amazing feeling of relief. In the morning when I went to, uh, to go to the airport, they sent the driver for me. And the driver said, we got to stop at uh, Manuel's office because he wants to talk to you. So I'm like, okay, uh, we're going to stop over there and, uh, and see what he wants. So when I go over there, I'm like, yeah, Manuel, is, is there anything that you need? Hold on one second. Let me cut that out. This dog started barking here for a second. So when I went to uh, meet Manuel in the morning, he's like, uh, George, come in. So I went in there. And he says to me, uh, you know what? We'll accept. You go ahead and handle all our operations for us. We'll make you equal partners. We need someone like you in the United States. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with these freaking people? I'm 20 years old. What do you mean they need somebody like me? I don't even know what the hell cocaine looks like. I, I mean, like, handle operation? What, the, what does that mean? I mean, who brings it in? Who takes it to where? Who buys this? How the hell does this... And then, what happens with the money? Because at the end, later on in life, we find out that the easiest thing was bringing it in. The easiest thing was selling it. The hardest thing is what we do with hundreds of millions of dollars in the, in the 70s. And now, I'm petrified. I mean, I'm so scared right now that I'm like, there's no way in the world I can tell these people no. So, I'm like, fine. Uh, let me go take care of the... Uh, we were remodeling this uh, ship in California. I said, let me take care of the ship. And once I, we've done that, I'll come back or we'll meet in Miami and we can go over what exactly it is that you all need. So when I go to California, all along there, the gentleman I had hired to do the refrigeration had kept asking me, hey, you know what? I know that your boat is for cocaine. And I'm like, no, you're crazy. How, how would this boat be to bring in cocaine when it's in my name? Am I that stupid? You know, he and I got pretty friendly because I used to play baseball really well, and he had a softball team, and so we became really, really good friends, and he just kept kidding me about that. So when all of a sudden I find myself that I'm going to be head of all operations, I'm like, you know what? This guy wants cocaine in California, but let me do the same thing. Let me make him a stupid offer. When he says no, then I can come back to the manual and say, look, I'd like to help you guys out, but I don't have a buyer. I don't know anything. So I go to Mel, and I say, hey, Mel. You know, all this time you've been harassing me about the bobbing cocaine. And, you know, now that we're close friends, let me tell you, it is, man. In the meantime, I had found out that cocaine in Miami cost 40000 It was $20,000 in Colombia at that time. And it cost about 5000 to bring it to the U.S., twenty-five, And wholesale, it will sell about $42,000, dollars uh, a kilo. So I go up to Mel and I say, hey, Mel, I want to come clean with you. We are drug dealers, but we only sell the best. And I mean, I'm acting like, you think that was Scarface at this time. And he's like, uh, oh man, I knew it all along. I knew it all along. Uh, how many can you sell me? I said, how many do you want? He said, well, how much? I said, 70,000. I mean, I, it took 
an act of God for me to not pee in my pants from laughing when I came up with that number because it was like, it's 43, 44. I'm telling this guy like 26 times. I could have said 80. I could have said anything. It just came out the top of my head. And he's like, man, that's, that's a lot of money. I said, exactly. But I told you that we only handle the best quality ever. So he said, well, let me get with my people. It wasn't about four hours later. He says, we'll buy five kilos. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I don't know if I can supply that little. And I'm like, man, at that night, I couldn't even go to bed. I was just in such turmoil. I'm either going to get killed by the buyers or I'm going to get killed by the sellers or somebody's going to kill me. But as a matter of fact, I didn't believe in God at that time, but I was sort of like, Jesus, just go ahead and kill me right now because, you know, take away the misery. (laughs) Lo and behold, I go to Miami and one of their uh, representatives from that grocery store, uh, his name was Jaime. And I'm like, Jaime, I got this problem. This guy already wants to buy three kilos, and uh, now they want to put me in charge of all this operation. I mean, like, I don't know what the hell to do. He said, oh, that's easy, man. He wants three kilos. We'll get him to California. Sell it to him. How much? I said, 70. He said, 70? Are you crazy? You sure they're going to pay and not rip you off? I said, I have no idea. I said, I said, man, I've never even sold a candy bar in my life. How the hell do I know if they're going to pay me or not? He said, man, you better act like you can kill each and every one of them, because if not, somebody's going to kill you. I mean, I just couldn't sleep for a week. They took the three kilos. I made uh, 60 some thousand dollars. And then I came back, and within six months, I was U.S. head of all operations, and I was importing over 85% of all the cocaine that came into America. And uh, I was 21 years old, and I was making between a million and $3 million a month. Now, it's very, very important to realize that's 1977 money, you know, which is a, a little bit different than in today's money. But, you know, the interesting thing for me was that now I knew I was going to be happy. Now I just knew that my world would change and that I would be somebody, that I'm somebody important. Uh, I mean, after all, now all our clients were Hollywood celebrity, movie stars. Uh, Cocaine was not even in the DEA radar during this time, so I was not even feeling guilty about doing anything wrong. And I lived a life. I had my own, I had the business, I had the office. I went to to my office every morning at 8 o'clock like I'd done all my life. I put on my suit and I left the office at 6 o'clock. And I ran the biggest empire and created the biggest drug empire in America and uh, created the most intricate financial web that there was. But why was I miserable? Why was it that now, for example, I remember one time I got a phone call and like, George, the Corvette convertible just came out. And I mean, I was like so excited. It was like, uh, you know, it was like if it was my bar mitzvah or my baptism. Yeah, I put on a suit. I put on cologne. I told one of my bodyguards, I said, hey, load up a briefcase with money. We're going to go find my happiness. And we get to a dealer. And all of a sudden, when I get to a dealer, I see that they got three colors. And I'm like, what the heck? If my joy is dependent upon one of these colors and I picked the wrong one, how am I going to be happy? So I did what any accountant would do. I just bought one of each color. And when people would say, well, what's the hardest thing you do every day, Joe? I said, well, of course, the hardest decision I make in the morning is what damn car I'm going to drive. And I looked around one day and I had a million dollars worth of cars. And I just couldn't understand why I was not happy. Well, I realized then I was married to one woman. And I'm like, well, I'm a good Cuban guy, so how can a Cuban guy be just happy with one woman? And I started dating all the most beautiful supermodels in America, and I hated them all. And could not understand why, all of a sudden, I hated women, treated them the way I did. I mean, I did not uh, abuse them or anything like that, but just to me, they were just so insignificant. When I adored my mother, who was my entire life, and I had the utmost respect in this world, just could not understand any of that. And every day in my life, I was miserable. And I, and I tell people, 
You know, everybody in the world wanted to be like George Valdez. You know, I was considered the most powerful person, well, one of the most powerful in America at that time, and no one even knew that I existed. But I tell people every day of my life, I would wake, I would lay down in my bed, I look at the ceiling, did not like what I see. Wake up in the morning, see the mirror, just did not like what I see. Then one of my uh, associates comes up to me and says, we have an opportunity. Uh, the government of Bolivia wants to make a deal with you. So I was in Colombia with the pilots, and I showed them what the airstrip was, and I was going to fly back to Nicaragua because I had a meeting with General Somoza where we were going to bring some drugs through uh, Corn Island, and then he was going to send it in in his uh, uh, refrigerated uh, cargo ships to us. We landed in Colombia, and everything was fine. Then all of a sudden, as we loaded up the cocaine, we spent overnight uh, tied up to a tree at night, and we got on the airplane about half an hour afterwards. We lost contact with Colombia because we lost both alternators. And eventually we're over uh, the country of Panama, about 5,000 feet when both engines just went off and we crash landed. And it was a miracle that we even lived because we were convinced that there was no way. The airplane had 150 kilos of cocaine. It had two tanks of ether. Uh, and, and then he had a bladder full of gas because when the alternators went out, we could not get the fuel from the inside bladder out to the wing tanks. And uh, we jumped from the airplane and then uh, the a military officer came and I took out $300 and I gave it to him and I said, look, we were looking for uh, uh, cattle ranches and we had a problem with the airplane and we crash landed, but all I need to do is if you could take me to a hotel and uh, here, take my passports, sign them, and uh, tomorrow I'm going to send someone. I'll have someone come and fix the airplane. He uh, took me to a private office and split us apart. And they came in there and it was the head of the DEA, the general counsel of Panama, and the head of the G2, which was the intelligence division for Noriega. They lined up all the cocaine in, in a table. They took pictures of us. When I got to Miami, I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America and given the highest bond ever in the history of America, $7 million dollars. I was just 23 years old. You know, I hired the best lawyers that money could buy. I hired every name uh, lawyer that you can ever imagine in America. I spent a million dollars at that time. Went to trial. I convinced that there was no way that they would convict me. But uh, they ended up bringing the captain of the Bolivian Air Force and they charged him with selling me the cocaine. And then the guy gets found innocent. And all of a sudden, he gets found innocent. I get found guilty. I'm like, I start screaming, go, if that SOB didn't sell anything, what the hell did I buy? But anyway, it did not matter. I was sentenced to 15 years in jail for conspiracy, which was the most that you could give to anyone because they didn't have a wiretap. They didn't even have the cocaine. The cocaine disappeared the same day. Noriega sold that quickly. I go off to prison, and, you know, people think that prison will change you. Prison doesn't change people. I went up to prison, and I was the same guy I always was. When I got out, after five years in change, uh, I went back to the same thing. And really, I look back now, there was no need for it. I was a multimillionaire. I couldn't spend the money that I had. But it was this thing that they thought they had beat me, but I'm going to beat them in the end. And I went back to the same thing, but something very dynamic started to happen right now. And what happened was, my mother found out for the first time that I was a drug dealer. All along before that, all she thought I was an international businessman because I had a lot of business. When she found out, it destroyed her. It destroyed her to a manner that till this day, and now this was in 1979, I just 
it is the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life, seeing my mother walk into the courtroom and hearing that her baby kid was charged with being this monster, being this, the most powerful man in America, you know, heading the largest drug conspiracy in the world. Uh, Justice Berger, the Supreme Court, said that in that court's opinion, Dr. Um, Mr. Valdez is a financial genius. And my mother is just, no, that's just my son. There's no way he could have done that. And she comes to see me, and I never lied to my mother ever, and I told her. And I said, Mom, but you know I wasn't doing anything wrong. This is, we're the Kennedys of the 21st century. She wouldn't buy none of it. She said, son, you destroyed us. But here's the interesting thing about my mom, and this is a message that I tell to a lot of parents that suddenly find their children making horrible choices in life. My mother not one single time would take a dollar from me. My mother not one single time stopped telling me that what I was doing didn't please God and that I had destroyed them. But in the same breath, my mother would say, well, what do you want for dinner tonight, son? Because she let me know that, yeah, I could become a monster. I could become whatever. But in her eyes, her God was bigger than anything. And in her eyes, her God would change her child. And I belonged in her house, even though she was going to condemn all my actions and whatever I did. And you know, at that time to me, it was very confusing. But 40 years later, I see this genius of it because I see we get mad at our kids and we kick them out of the house and we find our children making horrible choices and we call it tough love and it really doesn't work. It doesn't work by no means. We got to be tough, but we got to love. So it's not tough love, it's tough, but love. And that's how I raised my children. But, you know, and, and it went like that and there was not one chance that my mother would not ever stop telling me that. And she's like, son, if I get killed... You kill me because what you do doesn't please God. And I'm like, Mom, what God? God ain't real. Where was God when we came from Cuba and we were going hungry every day? Where was God when you came from Cuba and laid in a hospital dying of throat cancer? Where was God, Mom? And I just left and I went back to my operations. And two months later, I was already separated from my, from my second wife. One night, I'm partying in my house with some movie stars, and all of a sudden, the head of the uh, security at the gate says, George, your ex-wife just dropped your daughter. And I'm like, my daughter? I said, just bring her over. So she comes over. I tell the, the babysitter that lived with us, I said, go ahead and put her to bed and make sure she doesn't get out of her room, and in the morning, I'll have breakfast with her. And I went back to my party. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Two or three hours later, I hear this knock on my door. Said, "Daddy, it's Crystal." And for the first time in my life, I began to feel filthy. I began to feel dirty. And it was the feeling. The more she knocked, it was almost the feeling that you see your baby uh, child going to drown on a boat, and you're reaching out and touch their fingertips, and you just can't grab a hold of their hands. And I couldn't open the door because if I opened the door, I would contaminate her. I told the woman to get out of my room. They went to get out the door. I said, "No, out the window." And when they got out, I went into the shower. He's a man that never feared anything in his life. All of a sudden, in the shower, I started to shake and I started to tremble. I started to try to scrub the filth off of me, not wondering what the hell was going on in my life. How, how have I allowed my life to get to this point? I went underneath my sheets and I began to shake and shimmer. And when I come down and I was dehydrated, I went to get water and I saw my baby girl in the floor crying. And I said to myself, this will stop today. I didn't know. I said, oh, my life will change today. And I didn't know what change meant. You know, and this is what I tell people. When you know you got to make a change in your life, don't worry about what that means. Just know this. For me, it was simple. 
If I'm going north, I'm going to start going south. If I'm going east, I'm going to start going west. And I called my mother in the middle of the night, and I said, Mom, I'm done. And she knew what I meant. And she's like, God has answered my prayer. And I'm like, God, Mom, God has nothing to do with this. This is crystal. This has nothing to do with God. Or so I thought. And then I called in the morning. I called the head of the cartel, and I said, I'm finished. Now, imagine the desperation in my life at this point that I knew that most likely I'd be killed within a month. And I just moved off to my ranch. I sold my house in Miami. And, uh, and I went to live in my ranch and wait till someone came around. And the truth of the matter was that I just really didn't even care. Didn't care anymore because my desperation was so much that my life just had to find some type of a change. Anyways, I hired this guy to teach me karate. And I remember the first day that he comes to teach me karate. He says, uh, I'm going to teach you about the sword. And I'm like, man, I done karate a lot when I was younger. And I'm like, man, I'm really smart. I can't believe I hired this guy. Uh, I love weapons. He's not going to waste his time throwing kicks. We're going to get into weapons right away. All of a sudden, he turns around, and he has a Bible. And I'm like, I look at him, and I'm like, sir, first and foremost, I need to tell you two things. Number one, I don't believe in that book. Number two, I don't believe in God. And number three, I'm paying you a lot of money to teach me karate, so tomorrow would you please leave that sword home and bring the real sword? He got up into my face where I could smell his breath. It was the first man that had done that. And I said, uh, well, here's a seven-degree black belt. He's going to start whooping Jesus into me, and I'm going to be paying for it. So I'm like, hey, dude, dude, don't get excited. Let's just go ahead and wait and go waste your time. And I said, when the steam room heats up, you can talk to me, read to me, do whatever you want. He says, deal. And he read to me for almost three years. And people say, what did he say that made you come around? I said, really, honestly? Absolutely nothing, because I was just getting over the butt whooping he had given me to even think about what the hell he was talking about. But it was everything that I saw. You see, I saw a man that lived in a very little world. I saw a man that had a 14, 1500 square foot house, and he was so happy. And I lived in this $15,000 square foot mansion. I was miserable. I wanted to find out about this God that I didn't know nothing about. And I started to study theology, and I, started, I taught myself Greek. I ended up getting another bachelor's in prison, and five, almost five years later, I had started a master's from Wheaton College, graduated. Uh, I mean, when, when I was released, I went to Wheaton College and, uh, and finished my master's, became an adjunct faculty there, met the most amazing woman on God's earth, my wife, of 25 years now. Then from Wheaton College, I decided that I wanted to keep going, and I wanted to be the best theologian in the world. And I applied to Loyola, and I was accepted, and I got a Ph.D. in early Christianity and New, Te New Testament and ethics. And I became one of five Hispanics in America with a Ph.D. in Bible. You know, I, I'm here to tell the world, listen, the only thing our children need, the only thing our children truly want is our presence. It costs nothing. But we keep, we keep and we fall into this horrific cycle of destruction And, and, you know, it's like the old saying, Americans are so amazing about sacrificing their health to create wealth. And then they spend their wealth trying to get their health back. And we abandon our family. We abandon our homes. We abandon our wives. And at the end of the day, it doesn't bring us a bit of joy. We're just as miserable as we ever were. Because there's a hunger within us, inside of us, that to me cannot only, only be filled with the love of God and whatever God might be to anyone. I, I talk to people all over the world. I don't care what anybody is. I don't care if they're Jewish. I don't care if they're Muslim. I don't care if they're Christian or atheist. I don't care if they're straight or gay. 
All I care to tell people is, listen, I just want to tell you a story about me. My story. Not for you, not for anyone. My story. My life drastically changed when I fell in love with a Jewish carpenter. So my story is about nothing but falling in love and the fact that there is redemption, that there is hope in this world. And we don't have to sell to that message that, oh, I was a twice convicted drug dealer. Who's going to hire you? We're not defined by our failures. We're defined by how we get up from our failures. We're not defined by how much wealth we achieve. I think that we're defined by how many lives we impact. At the end of the day, what I tell people is when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? And if we care that history will remember our name, history will only remember our name because we've impacted the life of somebody else. Not because we have achieved great wealth, not because we're very rich, not because we have mansions and, and homes and uh, vacation homes and three and four cars. No. If all we do is impact the life of our children so that they become decent human beings that believe in integrity, believe in the word, and above all, love others, if I can do that, I've changed the world. And so can anyone listening today. God bless. And you've been listening to George Valdez. George's book is Narco Mindset, The Life Principles That a Cocaine Drug Lord Learned on His Journey to Find Meaning in His Life. And my goodness, his mom and his daughter were the catalyst for an abrupt change. What you do doesn't please God, the mom would always say, but she kept loving him. George Valdez's story here on Our American Stories.